What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Negotiations continue, but no debt ceiling deal uh, deal yet. The equity markets are largely in wait-and-see mode, while the yield on six-month T-bills is now at a multi-decade high. We'll look at how investors can profit from this disconnect. Plus, Microsoft unveiling more AI products, Google CEO warning of more AI perils, and Bank of America names one stock well-positioned to ride the AI wave to greater market share. The analyst behind that joins us ahead. And with Toll Brothers on deck, we'll see how much longer the home builders can keep rallying, especially as mortgage rates spike up again. That plus two other names are coming up in earnings exchange. But first, let's get today's markets and Dom Chu with the numbers, Dom. The stock market doesn't seem to fear what's happening with what's happening in Washington, D.C. And the reason why is if you take a look at the picture overall, Kelly, the S&P 500 is at now below 4,200. It's 4,169 and change. We're down about 23 points right now. This is towards session lows. We were down 28 at the lows of the session so far, down about seven at the highs. So it's been a predominantly down day. But again, we're talking about fractional gains and losses over the course of the last year. Remember, just a couple days ago, the Nasdaq 100 hit a one high, a one-year high. So the Dow Industrial is down about one tenth of one percent, thirty-three thousand two thirty-four. The Nasdaq Composite, the underperformer of the day, down about three quarters of one percent, twelve thousand six thirty-two. The last trade there. One place though, you are seeing a good amount of positivity: computer chips and circuits, that sort of thing. And that brings us to Broadcom and Apple. Now, Broadcom shares are up two percent in a predominantly down tape, driven on headlines that it alongside tech giant Apple, have now signed a multi-billion dollar, multi-year agreement for Apple to purchase Broadcom-produced U.S. manufactured chips, mostly for radio frequency, communications, wireless-type services. Broadcom shares up 2%, and by the way, we get to put a gold star up here because that's a record high now for Broadcom. So keep an eye on that technology trade, specifically with regard to semiconductors. And then we're going to end with a check on interest rates. They are all the rage right now, given what's happening with the debt ceiling debate, everything else happening there. Inflation is still part of the story. Kelly mentioned the six-month. Look at the one-month ticking just slightly lower, but it's still 5.57%. We're going to put a particular focus on other parts of the note and yield curve. The two-year note, 4.36%. The 10-year note yield ticking higher to 3.72%. That's been on a multi-day winning streak in terms of yields going higher. And I just want to call your attention, Kelly. I know in just a few moments here, we're going to get results. Big two-year T-note auction, $42 billion worth up for sale this afternoon. I'm sure in just moments you guys are going to be breaking down all the details. You and Rick Santelli, watch that two-year, currently 4.36%. I'll send things back over to you. No, the yields are eyebrow-raising again, Dom. Uh, We appreciate it, Dom Chu. Well, to raise or not to raise, that is the question for the Fed's next policy meeting in June. And none other than former Fed Chair Ben Bernanke this morning says another rate hike is necessary in the fight against inflation and that he thinks a soft landing is still possible. Both of my next guests agree about the rate hike, but not about the soft landing part. Let's bring in Brian Weinstein. He's head of fixed income at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. And here on set with me is Chris Crisanti, chief equity strategist at MAI Capital Management. Welcome to both of you. Chris, I'll start with you. Why do they need to keep hiking? 
Well, you know, Kelly, I think the economy is still quite strong. It's an ocean liner. We've had an inverted uh, curve for just about six months. It usually takes a year or more for things to really slow down. So they've really got their work cut out for them. There's still a, several hawks on the committee. I think you're going to see a hike in, Jan in June. Well, l let me kind of ask it differently. Or, or, or sort of phrase it differently. Maybe everyone thinks they will hike, but should they? I mean, they're, you're worried about a hard landing already here. I am. I am. And having said that, I think the Fed's between a rock and a hard place because they can't be easy on inflation if they get, to, by the way, the employment and the CPI numbers will come out right before the meeting. That might give them the excuse to hike that I think they're, they're going to use. Or maybe the excuse to pause, or do you think Could that's, or, or no, skip or whatever? I think we're still going to see strength. Okay. All right. Brian, I turn to you. And maybe that, I mean, only that really would explain bond yields at these levels, don't you think? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, as someone who thinks they should pause, and even uh, Jay Powell was out, you know, yesterday or the day before saying that, you know, there's some, some evidence they should they should pause. I think it's hard, right? I think the, the the risk markets are saying they need to go. And I think the way they played the transitory card on inflation, you know, too soon and maybe incorrectly, they need to show they're tough on inflation here. The market gives you an opening. You take it. I'm not sure they want to hike, but I do think another one is is in the cards. But it's in, so you basically said you you actually don't think they should keep hiking, but just that they will. So what do you see that you're worried about? You know, I, I think there's a tale of two markets here, right? I mean, I think if you're a smaller business, if you're looking for a regional bank to lend to you, um, I think it's tough, right? I think credit conditions have gotten much tougher. You can see it in survey data. If you're a large company, it feels pretty good, I think, right? Uh, especially a tech company. So I, you know, I think I think the Fed, the evidence that they've pointed us to, CPI and employment, continues to move along in a way that suggests the need to hike, unless they point us another direction or the data changes uh, dramatically in the next few weeks. You get you get another 25. I mean, we'll wait for a, in a moment for the results of this auction. But, Brian, are these yields a gift? I mean, well, who wouldn't? And, and I'll, uh, Chris, I'll ask you as well. But, OK, so you can get upwards of 5 percent, I think, beyond the six-month bill. I mean, maybe on the one year at this point. And yeah. I, I just don't understand why the market keeps offering what seem like such, you know, kind of shockingly high, like a gift, like practically a gift for people to take. Right. Well, Kelly, you and I have discussed this before. I mean, it, it's, it's happening. Money is moving to the front end of the yield curve. Money market fund flows are great. People are buying T-bills, opening up Treasury direct accounts, or buying funds. Um, and I think that's the right part of the curve. I think out the yield curve, where the market is really looking for the Fed to ease quickly, we're starting to struggle there, right? We got 10-year notes to 330, 335. They're back to 375. Tight range. But actually, I think the market is questioning whether or not the Fed has, has to ease quickly. So it makes that cash market much even more attractive in this <laughs> environment. I think you'll keep seeing it. I do think it's a gift. I think it's a good place to invest money. Yeah, I've been surprised by the strength in the 10-year part lately, I mean, th almost 375 today. Let's pause for a moment, get the results of that auction. It was the two-year, uh, which has been a quite a round trip of its own lately. Rick Santelli, how'd it go over? Uh, A's and Apple, that's what demand was. It's straight up one Eastern. Uh, the two-year note, $42 billion. I'm kicking off $120 billion in Treasury coupon supply. Well, those $42 billion two-year notes had a yield of four point. 3-0, Kelly. The one issued market was about a basis point and a half higher than that. Lower yield, higher price. If you're the seller, a high price is a good thing. Some of these metrics are really stellar. Uh, if you look at the bid to cover, 2.90. Wow, that was the best since January of this year. And if you look at 68.2 on indirect, that is the best since June of 09. June of 09. Can anybody hear those foreign bidders? I can. Direct was a little light. And that's the only reason it wasn't an A+. It really was a stellar auction. You could see yields have dropped. And 
With regard to those T-bills, remember, when it comes to T-bills, there's a lot of moving parts here, but one of the things we really want to pay attention to is if the debt ceiling gets solved, maybe there's going to be a boatload of T-bill issuance, <laughs> something to figure on on the better side of the equation. Kelly, back to you. Thank you, Rick. And, and it does seem, Chris, as almost investors looking at this like a gift, like we were just talking about a moment ago. Why? Uh, I think so. A couple of observations, and I defer to, to Rick, of course, but the, uh, this debt ceiling stuff has really kind of messed up the yield curve. You, you know, you see the high things real early and the two year was strong, maybe because folks don't want to buy the, the real short end because there's uncertainty. So, so I think that we need to, to let this simmer. But what I would say, Kelly, one last thought, is that maybe we don't want the Fed to ease because the situation that would cause an ease would not be good for the equity markets, which is where I'm coming from. It, I mean, the, the good situation is, hey, CPI is gently declining and the economy <laughs> is still strong, but it sounds like no one thinks that's going to be the situation in which they ease. Yeah, oh, I think that's right. I think they'd love to see the CPI gently decline for more than a year and keep things just where they are, something that would really make them cut that's something I don't want to see as an equity investor. You know, we often talk about your picks. I know, obviously, we've talked about Dollar General. Bristol Myers is one you're looking at today. But just when it comes to being in the market overall, what's the, the game plan for kind of debt ceiling, whatever might happen, sure. getting through that, knowing the economy is at some point is going to weaken? How long do you stay in? Do you, are you building cash positions to try to put to work later on? I'm just curious. Well, I think it's very wise right now to sail close to shore. There, there are times to get real excited about the equity market and go all in. But this is not one of those times. I, I think getting 5% for your cash is, it, it takes the FOMO away. So I think that's important. But I also think uh, there are some opportunities. You mentioned Bristol-Myers, which is stock that everybody seems to hate. We love that kind of opportunity. Well, they the don't have Alzheimer's and they don't have weight loss. So, you know, they're going to... No, and, but they also uh, don't have a, a high multiple. They're yeah. selling at seven times earnings. So we like that here. And they, they will do fine in a recession. The cash flow is strong. The balance sheet is strong. That's the kind of company you want to own if things get rough. Then, Brian, a quick final question to you is where do you think the 10-year is headed next? I mean, can the answer possibly be higher? You know, Kelly, I'm a little worried that the debt ceiling is going to highlight how much debt there is. Um, yeah. So last time there was a big conf conflict here. The government uh, shut down for a bit. We had a big rally. We got downgraded. I think people are positioned for that. I'm a little worried, and I wasn't worried about this a few weeks ago, that, yes, maybe we'll retest the highs of this range in the 10-year note, re-steepen the yield curve, because money is going to the front end, and the 10-year note, I think, could cheapen some more. So it seems counterintuitive, but I'd be careful buying longer-duration treasuries right now. Hang on, because the treasury math always confuses me. So does that mean you think yields at the 10-year going up or down? Ten-year yields, I think, could go higher. So we tested, what, 415, 420 um, late last year, um, or 375. I think we could get there again. Wow. Um, yeah, I think it's possible. Wow, very, very interesting. Thank you, gentlemen, both. Really appreciate it today. Brian Weinstein with Morgan Stanley, Chris Crisanti with MAI. The clock is ticking down to the debt default. That could happen as soon as June 1. My next guests have different views on whether it actually will happen. One says President Biden has no incentive to compromise right now, but the other says the president hasn't played his McConnell card yet. Yet. Joining me now are Nicholas Glinsman, co-founder of Malmgren Glinsman Partners, and Marco Papich, is chief strategist at the Clock Tower Group. It's good to see you both. Um, Nick, I'll just start with you and, and kind of what's the TikTok you expect here? Well, <clears throat> I've got a slightly different view insofar as if you go back to 2012-2013 fiscal cliff, um, it was sorted out by Biden and McConnell, who are long-standing, long-term friends. And McConnell seems to step up for Joe Biden quite a bit. 
Now, McCarthy is unpredictable. He's exposed to the whims of five, six GOP members who could, in effect, remove him. But McConnell has huge power within the GOP. He controls the funding of candidates. Hence, he has a strong ability to facilitate a deal. It's worked before over the end, end of 2012 fiscal cliff. I think we got an announcement in the evening of New Year's Eve. Uh, the market, the equity market had been down uh, quite aggressively. Come the first day of trading in 2013, gap open on the upside. So that's a possibility. I mean, you yeah. know, if, I, if somebody said to me, what's your timeline? Between 10 and 30 days, and then it's all history. So you're feeling a little more sanguine about it, Nick, whereas, Marco, you see a little more risk that things could go wrong here. What, why is that? Well, thank you, Kelly. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Nick. I think the GOP is actually um, has a pretty clear path to resolving the crisis. My concern is that the last time we had the debt ceiling in 2011, the last time this was a big issue, uh, the median voter in the United States was very clear. I mean, the polling was showing that about 70% of Americans uh, thought that the debt deficits were the most critical issue for the government to resolve. Today, that's collapsed to 40%. So 12 years later, you could argue that the median voter has a completely different view of uh, budget consolidation and austerity. And that's really important because it means that President Biden can push the Republicans to whichever corner he wants. Uh, and I am concerned about that. Now, the good news is the news flow has not supported my view. The news flow has been relatively conciliatory on both sides. So there is hope that, you know, I'm wrong. No, the, the positivity of the news flow is what has me so worried. I mean, it's almost glowing. Oh, McCarthy's, you know, so well supported. Oh, Biden's so good at negotiating. I'm like, why, why are we reading such positive commentary? It's odd. Well, you said maybe it's fine and the stock market's certainly acting that way. But I just wonder if there's many chapters of this yet to be written. One more on this, and then I, I want to ask you both about China. Uh, but, Nick, where, what would your advice be to investors who have to somehow figure out what to do? I mean, are they looking for a, a, an opening to buy stocks here? Or, or what is, what's the action plan? Well, I actually think once this, this gets resolved, you have a trillion dollars of new treasury issuance. That is a huge vacuuming of liquidity out of, this, out of the markets. And I think, uh, I don't know whether it's contrarian, but I think that vacuuming of liquidity will actually be somewhat negative for the equity market. So I have a slightly different view from the general commentary that, oh, equities are going to rally after the debt ceiling. Uh, gets resolved. Yeah, but uh, we've got a trillion dollars worth of issuance coming up. Plus, quantitative tightening will continue. Uh, other central banks around the world will be withdrawing liquidity. It's going to be uh, quite a hard liquidity environment going forward if everything is resolved in a positive fashion. That's a great point. And again, a Fed that has to consider that among many other factors uh, in debating this rate hike. Let's pivot and talk China for a second. You both have such strong views on it. We've had quite the news flow. We've also had the K-Web, K-Web China Internet ETF coming off a seven-week losing streak. That's its worst since the depth of the pandemic. Sentiment on China's growth has turned really negative lately. Meanwhile, Nike CEO John Donahoe spoke with our Sarah Eisen at CNBC's CEO Council Summit last night, and he had a pretty dire warning about U.S.-China relations. I think decoupling is, would be disastrous economically between the U.S. and China or China and, and or European Union. If you really look at the trade flows um, both ways, they play a mutually valuable role. And so, um, you know, again, we believe in global trade and we'll continue to try to do everything we can to support that. 
Marco, what do you think? I mean, we've talked before about whether Chinese stocks are a great opportunity. And as we kind of move into the, the middle of the year with a lot of headwinds over their economy and, and especially these, these kind of, we'll call them geopolitical risks, what should investors do now? Well, you know, first of all, when I look at China, I think they're stuck in 2009, 2010. Uh, it's a situation where consumption is not going to be revived easily. They're going to have to over-rely over on monetary policy and QE, which is negative for currency and positive for stocks, especially the big tech ones that will feed off of disinflationary impulse. Now, when you talk to American investors, they talk geopolitics. I'm on the road here in Canada uh, speaking to clients, um, non-American clients, whether Canada, Australia, the rest of the world. The rest of the world has a different perspective. They're not inundated with this you know, China, U.S., bipolarity, Cold War propaganda. Um, and so they're looking at China as an opportunity. They're looking at it as a tobacco stock with some sin premium to harvest, quite frankly. And so it really depends on where you're sitting and what your perspective is. But I do think that there'll be an opportunity over the, over the short term uh, to play this disinflationary impulse in China, which should be good for uh, large cap tech stocks. Yeah, well, that's a great point. I want to make sure everyone caught that as well, because we have had some deflation, uh, kind of a surprising way there. But Nick, let me turn to you. And I think you're as concerned as, as John Donahoe and some others about the business environment in China and the decoupling that, I don't know, is it going on here? Oh, yes, it's decoupling from the, by the U.S., but also by China. She is decoupling from the old uh, Deng Xiaoping model. Um, you have now... Uh, businesses in China, be they domestic or foreign, that has to have a CCP member within the decision-making process and have to follow uh, directives from the CCP. This means that shareholders and profit incentive are secondary towards to what the CCP is demanding. Our recommendation, we you know, we would define China as moving from an autocracy to a police state. She uh, has just basically appointed his equivalent of Stalin's Beria, Shen Zhijing, uh, as the man in charge of investigating U.S. companies for breaching the new espionage law that was brought in, in at the end of April. This is what has made due diligence uh, uh, an offense under that law. So, you know, if you are an investor, or be it corporate or financial, a fiduciary, you can't do, you really can't do, do due diligence. And I think this, we've already seen one non-Chinese uh, member of Bain was detained without any ability to contact outsiders. Right. You will see as the Americans respond, the Chinese retaliate. The Americans move forward with uh, the executive order on reverse CFIUS, Chinese will retaliate. Congress which will come out with legislation. It's the one thing congressional members can agree on is China. And they will come out with legislation that is a more restrictive reverse CFIUS. And the Chinese will react. We've seen how the Chinese behave towards other countries. Yeah. So you've got to be careful because actually just the other, last week, the U.S. State Department came out with a travel advisory warning for American citizens going to China. And China this time includes Hong Kong, by the way. So you've got to be careful. Yeah. And we think it's, it's uninvestable. And in fact, the data is beginning to prove it. Five days up to April 26th, $3.17 billion of foreign investor money pulled out via the Hong Kong Stock, stock Command. This will continue. And that's why we think uh, at Mount Gringlins, when we think the uh, dollar remember using the offshore 
Remember, he has headed to north of 734, which was the high late last year, uh, and can go a lot higher. Let me just, Marco, give you a quick uh, word to respond to that quickly, if you can. Well, I think the currency is going to continue to slide, but I have a much more mundane explanation for that. Um, they are uh, now willing to use fiscal policy. They're over-reliant on quantitative and, and monetary policy tools. So that's why Remebi is going to continue to go down. But I think five days of data is not enough. I mean, I, I speak with institutional clients around the world, uh, Southeast Asia, Middle East. The rest of the world just does not see the world the same way as the West does. And that means that China will remain investable. It depends on where you're sitting as an investor. Well, again, maybe bad news uh, for, for where our particular relations are headed. We'll leave it there, gentlemen. Thank you both. Marco Popich and Nicholas Glinsman okay. on China. Coming up, Broadcom hitting a record high after striking a multi-billion dollar deal with Apple. It has to do with China, by the way. AMD at a 52-week high as B of A boosts its price target on their AI ambitions. The analysts behind that call will join us next. And Lowe's lowering its full-year sales forecast as DIY goes MIA. We'll bring you the highlights from their results and look ahead to Toll Brothers and Palo Alto, both reporting after the bell. As we head to break, let's get a quick check on the markets. Tone improving somewhat. Dow still down only 21 points. S&P about half a percent. NASDAQ a little more than that. Russells are positive by half a percent today, by the way. And the 10-year yield, 372. We're back after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. As Microsoft unveils more AI features at its developers conference today, Google CEO Sundar Pichai is out with another warning, writing in the Financial Times that building AI responsibly is the only race that really matters. And in terms of those building AI, B of A today is singling out AMD as a market share winner. That stock already up nearly 70 percent year to date and hitting a 52 week high today. Bank of America sees another 11 percent upside from here. The analyst behind that note, Vivek Arya, joins me now. Vivek, welcome. It's good to see you. Thanks, Kelly. Likewise. You know, I don't mean for this to sound the way it's going to sound, but what's 11 percent after a 70 percent run, you know? Uh, Sure, Kelly. So first, I think let's start with the good news, uh, which is that we are in very early stages of outfitting cloud data centers with the picks and shovels that are required uh, to handle these large language models. I think we are just in the first one or two years or what could be a decade a transformation of these uh, data centers. And the core part of that will be accelerators. We think that market is just under 20 billion this year, and that can get to 60 to 80 billion dollars over the next uh, four to five years. So that's the good news. Now the tricky part is that the uh, the silicon required for those accelerators that market is dominated by Nvidia, 
70-75% market share, uh, followed by Broadcom, which is actually the least spoken about name in AI, but we think one of the more interesting ones with another 10-15% share. So that just leaves the remaining 10-15% of the market in this very long tail that is Intel, AMD, Marvell, a dozen plus startups. So part of the note was acknowledging that yes, AMD has uh, the potential to go after this very large market uh, and raising the price target to reflect that. But we have a neutral rating on AMD, which acknowledges the second part, that it'll be tricky for AMD to carve a niche when you have these two really large incumbents, NVIDIA and Broadcom, in that market. That's really interesting, especially to put NVIDIA and Broadcom in the same breath when one commands a much higher multiple than the other. Um, uh, Broadcom, you are a buy. Price target 800 on this Apple deal news? Yeah, I think what this Apple deal news has done is it has removed one overhang uh, from Broadcom stock. Early this year, uh, there were some media reports that Apple could look to insource uh, some of these uh, specific uh, components. Uh, Apple is Broadcom's largest customer, 20% of sales uh, last year. So any insourcing attempt by Apple could have been a problem for Broadcom. But I think what this uh, deal does is it removes that overhang for the next few years. And as I mentioned before, this will help investors focus on what really matters in terms of Broadcom's growth over the next few years and one of the most underappreciated parts of Broadcom, which is its presence in AI. So Broadcom today is number one in the cloud switches hmm. that are complementary to what NVIDIA does when it comes to uh, the outfitting of these AI data centers. And then Broadcom is number two after NVIDIA when it comes to helping uh, some of these uh, cloud uh, customers, especially Google, uh, Meta, uh, develop in-house custom chips uh, that can address a lot of their uh, AI uh, needs. So I think the good news here is it removes the overhang from Broadcom stock, which was related to the risk of Apple insourcing, and lets investors focus on what's really important for Broadcom, which is its potential as an underappreciated AI uh, beneficiary. Sure, although the way the stock's behaving lately, it's, it is becoming more appreciated. For, but on the valuation all that, I, I totally take your point. 16 times forward PE yeah. multiple. For a company that is generating 50% free cash flow uh, margins and has raised its dividends at a 25% compounded rate the last few years. Why not we give it a... think the valuation is extremely compelling. So why shouldn't the market give it a 70 times forward multiple or whatever it's giving NVIDIA right now? Yeah, I think uh, because it's a lot more diversified. Uh, so AI is only 15, 20% of uh, what they do. Apple is another 20%. And I think one reason for the overhang of the stock was this Apple insourcing. But now that risk is out of the way. I think it does help investors refocus. Yeah. Look, it's a lot more diversified uh, name. There's a lot of software aspects which are lower growth uh, for uh, Broadcom. But I think, so it's, it's, I would classify it more as a large cap value uh, stock with this underappreciated uh, growth driver whereas NVIDIA is more of a large-cap uh, growth stock. It, we have to go. Uh, just a, a word about Intel. I mean, anything there that you uh, are excited about, or is that story just a, a difficult one? Yeah, I think Intel, we remain uh, cautious. Of course, they are also exposed to the same large uh, rising tide. But what we have seen, Kelly, time and time again, is that semiconductors is a game of incumbency. You Market shares only change when the incumbent messes up. Intel messed up many years ago, which helped AMD gain share in CPUs. Mm -hmm. But now when you look at this new market of AI, NVIDIA is not messing up. Broadcom is not messing up. And I think that just makes it very difficult for other players to gain a foothold. Well said. Vivek, thanks for your time today. It's good to see you.
Thank you, Kelly. Vivek Arya with Bank of America. Still ahead, much more on the AI space, including which industries are now the fastest growing in tech. And here's a hint. They've seen a flurry of deals recently. We'll tell you more when the exchange comes back. Dow's down 84 points. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Good afternoon and welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update at this hour. A new report from the Illinois Attorney General found a long history of sex abuse in Catholic churches across the state. Investigators found that 451 clergy sexually abused nearly 2,000 children. Between 1950 and 2019, this is far more than the 103 individuals the church named when the state began its review in 2018. A Russian court extended American journalist Evan Gershkovich's pretrial detention. By about three months, Russia detained the Wall Street Journal reporter on espionage charges back in March, with both he, which both he and his employer deny. If convicted, he could face up to 20 years in a Russian prison. Last month, the U.S. government designated the journalist as wrongfully detained. Senior Biden officials are pushing to send U.S. troops to a rugged area between Colombia and Panama to curb drug smuggling, human trafficking and migration. They would focus on a stretch of land known as the Darien Gap. Thousands of people attempt to cross the gap every year by relying on smugglers to get them through the harsh terrain. Kelly, back to you. See you in a half hour. Thank you, Tyler. Tyler Matheson. Coming up, toll, uh, Lowe's Toll Brothers in Palo Alto. We've got the numbers and narratives to know for those two names reporting. Uh, that's coming up next in Earnings Exchange, while Lowe's hangs on to a 1.5% gain. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. Debt ceiling drama getting a lot of attention does at session lows right now. But we've also got a bunch of earnings reports with a read on the most important part of the economy, the consumer. Let's start with Lowe's. They reported an earnings beat offset by declines in same-store sales and gross margins. Higher lumber deflation and a drop in discretionary sales took it down revenue and their same-store sales guidance. We turn to Gina Sanchez for our trades today. She's Chantico Global CEO and a CNBC contributor. Gina, it's good to see you. So let's start with the one who's already reported, uh, which is Lowe's. Do we learn anything? What's your take? What would you do with the stock here? Honestly, we learned stuff that we already know, which is that consumer discretionary is starting to pull back, and Lowe's is feeling it. We already sort of saw that with Home Depot, so we knew that going into this, and so I don't think anybody's surprised by this. Lowe's is a cheaper trade to Home Depot, partially because they were, you know, really doing a lot of catch-up during the pandemic, um, and quite frankly, the outlook for Lowe's is a little better. So comparatively speaking, it's a cheaper opportunity for a little better growth. So, you know, the, the, the story is that the consumer is going to continue to pull back, and unfortunately, those DIY projects projects, you know, you have to do the math. Are you willing to put the money in if we have higher interest rates, you're going to have a harder time selling your home? So I think a lot of people are doing that calculus and Lowe's is feeling it. Yeah, for sure. Although the stock is hanging on to about a 2% gain today, it's still green year to date. Let's move on to Palo Alto Networks, which reports after the bell today. They're, you know, cybersecurity stock up 40% this year. Uh, People looking for commentary on billings growth, profitability, macro headwinds, AI. You're still bullish. And what has been driving this levitation lately? 
So look, you are also seeing some slowdown there. We're bullish because we think there's a long secular story here as the as use of the cloud grows and as that story grows, the need for cybersecurity is going to continue to grow. And one thing we know is we've already seen some of their competitors reporting and they're showing that people are still spending on cybersecurity. This is really important, but you're also hearing from the company that in fact it's getting harder and harder to close sales. It's it's you know taking longer, they're getting shorter uh, duration contracts and so all of that is going to stack up to maybe a little slower growth, but from 40% a little slower is still a lot of growth. And so from what we see, we see a long secular uh, growth story here that we want to continue. It's expensive here. That's the one thing you have to remember. Um, but look, they are continuing to do everything that you need. They're getting, you know, they're continuing their government sales. They're continuing to get all of the certifications and requirements and recommendations that they need in order to do that. So the story has a durable, um, has a durable element to it. All right, then let's move on to the home builders. Talk some Toll Brothers, which is also uh, out this afternoon, uh, up nearly 30% this year, even though, well, maybe because of higher rates in a way. We're looking for updates on new home orders, weather issues on the West Coast, any build, more builder commentary, uh, bullish builder commentary. Stocks down 1.5% today, up 27% this year. What do you do with that? So, you know, Toll Brothers is actually still cheap. This is an interesting one because, you know, they had, you know, they, they basically, a lot of people were throwing out a lot of the home builders because interest rates were going up. And so interest, as interest rates were going up, the assumption was, well, you know, it's going to be harder and harder to sell your home. And they were right. But there is still a massive shortage of houses. And so as we're starting to look past, you know, the, the Fed finally starting to take the, you know, the foot off the, the gas pedal, as it were, um, you're starting to see an increase in demand. You started to see it in January and February. That's continuing through. And so Toll Brothers just needs to, things to look a little less bad. Now, the debt ceiling talks are not doing anything to help that. Um, so, you know, that is that is something that you do have to watch with respect to interest rates. But as long as we get a little bit of better news um, out of the interest rate story, some stabilization, higher higher home prices are actually a good thing uh, for for Toll Brothers. And there's still a massive shortage. So the, the supply demand dynamics are still in their favor. And we've forgotten that over the last year. And we're going to start to see that really start to ramp up as we go into at least a stabilizing interest rate market. So you'd stick with the stock? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Home builders, too, uh, hanging on to those gains. Gina, thanks. We appreciate it today. Gina Sanchez. Thanks. Still ahead, the number of companies using AI has grown 1,310% in just the past six months. That's according to a new report. It also highlights which areas are seeing the fastest growth. Today's tech check on that is straight ahead. But before we head to break, let's get some show and tell where we show you a chart and tell the story. And United Airlines is actually on pace for its best month since January. Since the pandemic, Denver has surpassed Chicago O'Hare as the carrier's largest hub. Now they're adding even more capacity in Denver ahead of what's expected to be their busiest Memorial Day ever. But will demand hold up despite worries about a recession? Here's what CEO Scott Kirby told our Phil LeBeau earlier on Squawk Box. Now demand is really strong right now. The consumer is strong. You know, we've had this month uh, six of our 10 biggest booking days in history. The other four record days were in March before Silicon Valley Bank. Demand is really good. Bookings are strong. Uh, it's going to be a busy summer. Welcome back. As the AI gold rush continues, there are certain areas within tech that are growing faster than others. Deirdre Bosa here with more in today's Tech Check. Deirdre? 
So, Kelly, generative AI, it is exploding among consumers. Same story in the enterprise. So Databricks, the data management startup in a Silicon Valley, darling, did a deep dive on how it's more than 9,000 customers are using data and generative AI. Here is CEO Ali Godsey. Every organization we talk to say that they have a mandate from the CEO, from the board. They need to do something with generative AI. So everybody's doing something. But having said that, the obvious ones are customer support, automating that. That's top of mind for everyone. He says that the number of companies using large language models grew by nearly 1,000% in just the four months following ChatGPT's release. But there is an important distinction he calls up between open source and closed source models. That is companies that are simply plugging ChatGPT into their businesses versus companies that are building their own models on an open source platform using their own proprietary data. He says that those are the ones that are gonna win in enterprise. We think in the next five years, in every industry, in every vertical, the winning companies will be data and AI companies that have built their own models, that they have proprietary data sets that come with them. Those are the ones that are going to win. So he says the companies, they're now starting to realize just how valuable their data sets are. And as such, you could see more of them lock those down, keep them away from Google or other aggregators or demand big fees for the privilege of seeing them. So, Kelly, as this platform shift occurs, data continues to be the oil or the gold, whatever you want to call it. But the most valuable thing amidst this change. So do companies have to work? You know, what is it called when you kind of clean your data or kind of get it ready for AI? I mean, I know a lot of people are probably doing this already, but um, they probably have to step yeah. up those efforts. Yeah, that's what a company like a Databricks or a Snowflakes helps companies do. And so they're learning that they should create their own models within their own organizations. So in that sense, too, I talked to Ali about how companies that already have a lot of this stuff are going to win. And it's going to be harder for some of the incumbents to win in this space because they don't have that data to rely on. But it also makes you think, Kelly, a conversation we have often, if this is just going to end up with the Microsofts, the Amazons, the Apple that are the aggregators that are collecting data on the back end. So, you know, in this whole shift that's happening, who's going to serve the enterprise? Who's going to serve the consumer? Is it going to be big tech versus the incumbents once again? Yeah, totally. Deirdre, thank you. We appreciate it. Deirdre Bosa in Tech Check. Speaking of which, don't miss a special AI edition of Power Lunch this Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. We've got an all-star lineup of guests from every industry impacted by the AI debate. Friday, 2 p.m. Don't miss it. Still ahead here, Pfizer higher once again in today's session after the company said yesterday its Ozempic competitor drug may be as effective for weight loss. Former FTC Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb is here to weigh in on that. Plus, we'll ask him about some other surprising applications of Ozempic. And throughout May, CNBC is celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage with stories of some of their influential business leaders. Here is Kinsey Capital Partners founder Suzanne Yu. I feel very fortunate to have grown up an American, but also with a deep appreciation for my Korean roots. When I started my career in finance, I didn't look like everyone else and found I was often misunderstood and underestimated. But I learned to take a seat at the table and contribute by finding my voice and using it. I have found strength in the Asian American community, which has given me support and confidence, especially as I went off to launch my own company. Each of us has our own superpower, and it's up to you to use that power to create success on your own terms.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Pfizer higher again in today's session, up 2.5%. Yesterday, they said their oral weight loss drug may be as effective as the injectable Ozempic for weight loss. And there are reports that Ozempic may also curb other addictive behaviors like smoking and drinking. Here to weigh in on all of it, we welcome former FDA commissioner and CNBC contributor Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Uh, thanks for your time and welcome. Thanks a lot. I mean, how do we make sense of this brand new world of weight loss drugs that maybe this time are, uh, are really going to work? They're already seeing widespread adoption. And the Ozempic thing is really kind of freaky. Why would it stop people's other addictive behaviors? Yeah, look, I'm not sure it does. It, there's some speculation that it could act on certain pathways in the brain that decreases pleasure from certain addictive behaviors. I think that's speculative at this point. Right now, we only have studies in animals animal models that were um, addicted to alcohol, that sought out alcohol, seemed to diminish their craving for alcohol when they were prescribed these drugs. We don't really have human data, so I think that that's speculative right now, and it's not clear whether or not the impact it's having on pleasure-seeking behavior is just from its effects on weight loss, set the sense of satiety, and diminishing people's craving for food is also having other impacts on other cravings. But we're clearly in the early innings of these drugs. Right now, only 5 million prescriptions were written last year. Many of those were for di diabetic patients. Um, and so we're going to see utilization grow from here, given how effective these drugs are in promoting weight loss. To give you sort of a basis of comparison, about 20% of the public's on statins. I don't think we'll get anywhere near that level that, that are prescribed these GLP-1 drugs. But about 40% of the population is probably indicated for them based on weight alone. And I wouldn't be surprised in the next five years if we get to the high single digits of Americans that have prescribed these drugs, assuming that the data continues to show that they're safe and effective for these intended uses. Yeah, I mean, so many different questions to ask. You know, what, what are the break, scientific questions about what are the breakthroughs here? Obviously, the biggest possible headwind in all of this would be uh, unanticipated side effects that could still be uh, yet to be discovered. You're on the board of Pfizer. Is there oral weight loss uh, a drug a real rival to the successful products already on the market? Well, look, the company certainly hopes it's going to be competitive. The data that came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association was released late last year at a medical meeting. Uh, there's two drugs that Pfizer is developing, uh, another formulation that's an oral once-a-day pill. And in the, the data that was released yesterday, the company has said previously that they're going to take one of these two forward. These are mid-stage clinical trials, so I think it's hard to read across from these trials at the data from some of the other drugs that are more advanced. But there's going to be multiple entrants in this space. And I think as you see more entrants come in, prices should start to come down as well. Right now, these drugs are expensive. The ones that are on the market cost anywhere from $900 to about $1,300 a month. So that's prohibitive for a lot of people. And you're seeing health plans put in place restrictions on access to these medicines for the weight loss indication. But as more competition enters, you see different formulations, oral formulations, as well as IV injectable formulations. Prices hopefully will come down and make these more accessible to more Americans who could benefit from them. Why did everybody suddenly discover this at the, at all at the same time in slightly different versions? Yeah, I think it really was the data that came out around Monjaro, the Lilly drug, which looks to be very effective at promoting weight loss in patients who aren't diabetic, as well as the data from Wegovy, the Novo Nordisk drug. So once you saw those, saw those very big weight gains in definitive clinical trials, which is relatively recent, uh, patients who didn't have diabetes that were just using these drugs to promote weight loss who were obese had BMIs above 30 or above 27 if they had multiple risk factors related to uh, weight gain. That really instigated, I think, wider utilization because as a public health tool, if you could promote substantial weight loss, 15% weight reductions, which is what we saw with Novo Nordisk, 16% with Manjaro, Lilly's drug, in a late-stage clinical trial involving 900 patients, 
seeing that magnitude of weight reduction for a clinician treating a patient who's obese, who has risk factors related to the obesity, that's really profound. You're going to have a big public health impact from that. Yeah, I mean, we obviously know the cost is a lot to bear, but so is the cost of not treating some of these conditions. What do you think is going to be the harder road, getting it more broadly approved by private insurance or by Medicare, for instance? I think, well, Medicare, the plans, the private plans really administer the utilization of these drugs through the Part D program. I think a lot of health plans right now are putting in place restrictions on access to these drugs, even for patients who are overweight, you know, requiring them to try to uh, pursue other means of weight loss before they move on to these drugs, just given the sheer cost. And employers are doing that as well. I would hope that as the data continues to show that this kind of weight loss is promoting long-term health gains, that in the long run can be cost savings to the healthcare system as a whole and to health insurers, as you said. And I would hope that as more entrants come into the market and we start to see more price competition, they're going to be more accessible to patients, uh, assuming that you know, the data continues to show that it's safe and effective for these uses. Remember, these are old drugs. These aren't r- new drugs. They've been on the market for a long period of time in daily formulations for diabetes. So we do have more and more experience with these drugs. Now, we don't have as much experience at these doses, the higher doses that are being used for weight loss and in patients who don't have diabetes. So there's still a lot to learn. But we do have a long experience with the basic um, molecular entity that's being used in these drugs. That's an interesting point. So basically people are taking successful diabetes drugs, but with higher doses than then for people who don't already have the condition. And that's effectively what's happening here? Right. These, the, the drugs that are being used or see, these drugs being used in the weight loss indication are being delivered at higher doses. And so it's at the higher doses that you're seeing these profound um, weight losses in these clinical trials. In, in diabetes, when they're used in type 2 diabetes, they're generally used in lower doses. But you do see uh, meaningful weight loss in those trials as well, 10% or more weight loss in the clinical trials looking at type 2 diabetics who use these drugs uh, for glu- primarily for glucose control, but also found they promoted weight loss. And as we know, if you're a diabetic patient and you lose weight, that's also going to help with your glucose control. No, it all sounds in a way so, like, so profound that you'd think the share should be up even more. And granted, Lilly and some of the early movers are. Uh, Pfizer with a nice two-day gain for the least. We'll leave it there. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, thanks for your time today. We appreciate thanks it. Thanks a lot. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.